artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 19. Today I'll be concluding the interview with Tony Chinetsky, who is a futurist in the United Kingdom. He is a member of the Chatham House in London and the managing partner of Sustensis, also in London, a think tank for inspirations for humanity's transition to coexistence with superintelligence. Tony is the author of several books on the subject of superintelligence, three of which form the Post-Humans series. In part one, we talked about the pandemic and its current and likely effects on European geopolitics. In this part, we'll get into more of that, plus Tony's thoughts on restructuring economies to leverage technological dividends and the existential threat, but also potential, of artificial intelligence in reshaping the nature and destiny of the human race. I think you can tell already that Tony's not afraid to think big. We go between the right-here-and-now immediate issues raised by AI on this show all the way out to the possible demise or transcendence of humanity. It's amazing that one technology can span such whiplash-inducing scopes, but that's one of the fascinating things about artificial intelligence. So here we go with part two of the interview with Tony Chinetsky. To move this onto a broader and long-range perspective, and to bring your background into economics into play here, I'm thinking about the dividend from artificial intelligence and advanced technology. We know that can create enormous wealth, but we don't have a wealth shortage we have a wealth distribution problem, in the same sense that for 30 years at least we haven't had a food shortage in the world, we had a problem getting it to the people who were starving, while in other countries they were throwing it away. And there was never any need for anyone to starve. Now, if we consider the kinds of benefits that could accrue from deploying AI and other advanced technology, we can see all kinds of wealth that could be created as a result. But if we keep the same structures that we have now, there will still be people in grinding poverty and there will be others that are insanely rich. And it seems to me that the current systems we have for spreading that wealth around don't allow us to make a distribution of it that creates a world that works for everyone. What are your thoughts on that? Well, <clears throat> I'm always a campaigner for a world that works distribution. And in my first book, I proposed the creation of the Global Wealth Redistribution Fund. Uh, this is similar to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, but it goes much, much further. And the mechanism of running such a fund is entirely different. So let me just um, uh, go perhaps 20 years from now, but I, I start where we are now and how we can get to uh, in 2040. Um, all countries of the United Nations, uh, members of the United Nations, 183 have, uh, were asked. It was in 2010, I think, to, no, no, 2001, to donate 0.7% of their budgets 
to that uh, Millennium Fund, as it was initially called. It was then rehashed as the Sustainable Development Goals. In 2015, only seven countries in the world made that 0.7% GDP contribution, among them Britain, which addition in 2015, Mr. Cameron put into the law, which is now under pressure from Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, uh, who wants to abandon that commitment. But anyway, 0.7%, now many more countries pay 0.7% of that fund. What I propose is uh, that uh, we can achieve two goals. First of all, to rectify the damage, the horrible destruction, that the catastrophe that the colonial powers brought on the African uh, nations and the Asian nations in particular over centuries. So this is at least the, the time and at least the minimum that we could do to share some of our wealth with them. The second one is that such a global scheme on an entirely different basis and in a different magnitude of health would stop the uncontrolled massive economic migration. And not only economic, it might become a survival migration, literally, physical survival. If there is a, a sustained drought in Africa, then these people will have nothing to lose. We may see millions of people trying to get through the Mediterranean in any way possible. It, that scenario is not far from, from actually uh, being fulfilled, and I hope it won't. Uh, therefore, the, the way forward would be, for instance, for the European Union, which I consider already a kind of a pseudo-world government, because unfortunately we can't rely on the United Nations for all the good reasons that this uh, good is said about the organization, but unfortunately when it is needed and when some drastic and fast actions are needed, this is no good. So we need a different organization. The European Union is already taking a kind of a mantle of responding instead of the United Nations in that area. It could do more. It could propose creating such a fund, say by 2024, to, uh, to which, um, say, 0.4% of GDP is in invested straight away from the 0.7 uh, GDP contribution in the United Nations SDG fund. And that could be topped with additional money. So that by my calculations in 2030, we would create a fund of roughly 800 billion euro, uh, where the donor countries, the rich countries, would donate 2% of their GDP. But the whole assumption of that fund is that everyone that is in the fund contributes the same amount of GDP. So the project is similar to the European Union cohesion program, which has worked so well, it's enough to look at the 10 countries that joined the European Union in 2004, how fast they have almost miraculously came out of almost poverty into what they are now. They, their national debts are lower than the debts of the richer countries. This is a different 
Uh, anyway, that program worked very well because these countries had also to contribute to the common European budget, the same amount of money of their GDP percentage. And in the projects that were realized, they had to contribute um, from 10 to even 40% of the money. But most importantly, every expenditure was closely monitored. So first of all, the reason for the expenditure was analyzed, whether this is worthwhile, whether there are any, and so on and so on. So we could have this kind of model applied to Africa. And if you do, by 2040, that fund would amount to roughly 4 trillion euro, which is more or less the current total budget of Africa. I'm talking about 20, in 20 years time. Um, so that would achieve a lot. Within that program, even in this decade, we could have uh, a kind of a welfare state for Africa. Why not? Yeah, uh, because I believe that universal basic income will happen within the next year on a large scale in many countries, being, uh, uh, being I'm not sure what I, <coughs> being the, uh, the cheapest way, essentially, to finance this. Uh, so, uh, in summary, I think um, the Global Wealth Redistribution Fund would clean to some extent our conscience, but also secure for us the whole planet about the future. And artificial intelligence play a major role in that. First of all, uh, it would enable the richer countries to be more productive because the artificial intelligence impact in the uh, beneficent the beneficiaries, uh, countries, will not make that impact because they are less advanced. Um, and, but also, uh, I would add, what I agree strong, uh, disagree strongly is the projection of the global GDP growth over the next decade. I think this happens in many other domains of science that the forecasters and scientists, they use the same kind of past numbers and the rates of growth as they used to, that means linear growth. We forget that we will be now changing of moving forward in almost exponential rate. And therefore, 3% of GDP growth globally, as it's forecasted by OECD, is really not um, equivalent to what I think will happen. McKinsey has uh, in, uh, recently came out with some of its own figures over 4%. But I think it, even that is, is lower than what I, I think will happen, provided that we are not um, make ourselves oblivion, <laughs> oblivious in the intervening period. Uh, this is the disaster waiting to happen. Right. And that's where you're getting at an important point here, I think, because the kind of financial reshuffling that you're talking about is perhaps not new in a broad sense that people would be thinking, yeah, we've heard things like this before from utopian socialists of one kind or another. And if 
only we could just tax enough people and move the money around, then we would create a nirvana, and that's okay. Good luck with that. But here, the choice is not about doing that to create some kind of socialist wonderland. The choice is about doing that, as you say, to address the possibility of human extinction. And what do you see as the risk factors that tend towards that outcome? Yes, uh, perhaps I would only add some arguments to support what I just said about the uh, GDP growth. Take your mobile phone. Very, very few people realize that what they've got on their mobile phone, including the phone, in 1982 would be worth over a million dollars. That is the statistics for 2015. So now it is even more. Just the GPS, not the quality that you have on on your mobile phone, in in 1980 would cost you about a quarter of a million dollars for an hour. People forget about it. We live in the world that demonetization, dematerialization is already happening. If you think uh, about the prices of Amazon, of some goods, they are just incredible. How can people produce something like this for, for peanuts? And that is my case. And this is just the beginning of it. Less and less will be manual manufactured. I, I, even today, this morning, I look how blueberries are collected, strawberries, and so on. I thought, why they are so cheap? They are so cheap because most of them are now collected by machines, robots. So that that, that is my positive, if you like, uh, view on the prosperity of, of humanity. Now, regarding, you, you want me to talk about the risks? Oh, yes. Yes, let's talk about the dark side of our future. Um, unfortunately, um, as for instance, uh, famously had been said by Stephen Hawking, the late professor of physics, and Martin Rees, we have roughly 50%, some people say less 50% chance of survival by the end of this century. Right? There are 10 top existential risks, all of these man-made, not asteroids, not volcanoes, earthquakes, the risks that we created ourselves. In 1945, we only had one such risk. That was the nuclear bomb and the global nuclear war in the 60s and so on. Now we have 10 such risks, like bioengineering uh, pandemics, nanotechnology, AI of which I mentioned, climate change, although not immediate, and I can talk about this, and uh, weaponized AI, and, 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 and several more. So the question is, how do we deal with this? Let, let me start mm, with the climate change, because this is what people hear about it. The Extinction Rebellion, I think was, a, a, on, in one sense, a fantastic um, happening, it literally happening, because it was like a happening, uh, because it, it drove home a notion that we are living on one planet, 
This is our planet. We have to fight not just about the reason to live for our country, for our nation, but for the planet. And although some of the means were pretty drastic and I wouldn't subscribe to them, the message and the point of view was wonderful. The last time that we had it was during the CND times. Perhaps you remember that. Campaign for nuclear disarmament. Yes, yes. Um, although I strongly disagreed with the, the way what the Extinction Rebellion and CND have in common is that they look at the whole planet. They look at civilization, at humanity, that we can all perish. And that is the point of departure from climate change. Unfortunately, I think it is being exaggerated in using existential or extension. Extension will happen, but not in the next 10 years, 20 years. No. It, it, if it will happen, it will happen, say, in the next century, towards the end of the century, in literal sense. The damage is already being done. It will be even more uh, damaging if we don't do anything. However, there is nothing to compare it with the artificial intelligence, whereby 2030 we may have, and uh, Stuart Russell, one of the top um, AI scientists uh, in his book, uh, Human Compatible, recently published, makes precisely that point, that by 2030 we may lose control over the development of AI. It will be too late, just the end of the, that's why I call this decade, the decade of immature intelligence. And um, ignoring or say passing over the other remaining risks, the artificial intelligence in this decade may have uh, several aspects which may endanger perhaps not the species but the fate of civilization in the extreme examples. But First of all, it would exaggerate other existential risks at the same time, such as uh, uh, pandemics, if there is any, or, or, or global warming, and, and others. But secondly, it will be a, a, a weapon of first use, if you like, by those who still imagine that they can uh, rule over the world. Uh, weapon of choice, especially if it can be done sort of clandestinely, like those uh, little green men in Crimea, right? It's not us, said Russia. So China, we say, it's not us, right? Us too. And, uh, and, and therefore, uh, this is the first direct uh, malicious use of the AI in this uh, decade. The second one, which is more probable, perhaps, and may uh, happen earlier, is the inadvertent uh, acting of AI, of AI systems, say in a few years' time, that may paralyze communication, water supply, electricity, and uh, even launching nuclear weapons. Right. And the time that this episode airs, we will have had Roman Yelmpolsky on in a previous episode who will have talked at length about those scenarios. And I do want to visit something before our time is up here because in your last book you refer to the Kardashev scale, which is actually something that Richard Foster Fletcher also got into, which is that scale on which civilization can be rated for its ability 
to harness the energy from either a planet or a star or galaxy. And it occurred to me when you were speaking that that's talking about physical energy that you could measure on some kind of watt meter. But what I thought we need is some way of measuring our cooperation as a species, our level of working together, because otherwise we can make all the plans we want for how to restructure and redistribute wealth. But if we don't cooperate, that's not going to happen. We will be left like kids squabbling in a schoolyard surrounded by all kinds of building materials, but instead of making a house out of them, we beat each other over the head with them. I wonder whether there is anything that could describe and give us a goal to aspire to for the level of cooperation that is needed, the level of empathy that's needed between nation-states, major corporations, prominent leaders, for instance. Because as hard as that might be to measure, ultimately that's what's going to drive the make-or-break scenarios, I believe. What do you think? Well, it's an excellent idea. I never thought about that, but I really have a solution. I'm a solution guy. You know, this is kind of an inheritance of my consultancy years. When there is a problem, there must be a solution. So you you put you pose the problem, and I think I have a solution to create a kind of a meter of global cooperation. And you know what I think it might be? If if the European Union gets federated, that will be the number of new members joining the European Union or the European Federation, which with time may become a human federation. So that is as short a response as I could give. But you provoked me to that. <laughs> Thank you. And I had not thought of that. What would you like to be true 10 years from now? That the war will no longer be possible because it simply is a futile weapon. The potential aggressor, uh, I don't want to name any country, uh, wants to wage a conventional war, nuclear war. What will be left for him? Nothing. He will perish unless he is a psychopath. And we haven't mentioned that, but in my view, this is a real danger. It's a Dr. No from the first Bond film that worries me a lot, that despite the global cooperation, we may have one maverick, a very rich one, perhaps, or um, someone that controls uh, or is a dictator of an of a, of a enough powerful state, that may wage um, a disaster on the on the on the humanity. Yes. But uh, ignoring that, I think that uh, the way forward is not to succumb to the attempts of some autocrats or dictators of large, very large countries. Let them, well, we have to suffer. They will try to conquer the world. But I think if they play war games, they will know what I just said, that any conventional war on nuclear war is out of the question to conquer the world. The only way is through artificial intelligence. Because 
Like, for instance, in China's uh, instance, they are far more advanced in, uh, in uh, quantum uh, computing, and uh, quantum encryption especially, than the rest of the world. So there are several areas where China is already leading. If they think that they can use this in order to um, demilitarize the world by switching off all the electronics, by um, electromagnetic bombs, for instance, or other means, uh, some, some viruses, then they may think that they have conquered using artificial intelligence the world. But you, you probably remember the first Asimov law, right? The one that uses the artificial intelligence on, or the robots to conquer the others would essentially harm others. And the law says do no harm. So it will be very difficult for such an artificial intelligence with time to distinguish who is a foe, who is a foe and who is a friend. And therefore, sooner or later, such a dictator or autocrat who thought that he may have conquered the world would have perished anyway. So that is my hope. And I believe that by, I said in my last book, that roughly by 2035, all wars will be over. Wow, what a thing to aim for. The end of history, or the end of war. Sorry that this is where it has to end. For our listeners who want to follow you, find out more about you, get your books, where should they go? Well, they should go to the Sustensis website, www.sustensis.co.uk, and all is there. I invite experts and just anybody that's interested in the subject to contribute to the website because it's like a kind of a melting pot of ideas, how we jointly can think of some approaches, some uh, counter um, uh, weapons, if you like, that will stifle those who still dream of conquering the world. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tony Charnetsky. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Wow. On the one hand, I have to pull myself back down to earth to remind myself where and when I really am. And on the other hand, part of me doesn't want to. We are at one and the same time living through one of the greatest upheavals in modern history, and I'm well aware that many of our friends did not live through it, and yet we are also privileged to be witnessing this renaissance in technological progress in not just AI, but, for instance, commercial space development, energy storage, and environmental science. Even fusion power claims to be on the brink of break-even, there again, they've been saying that for decades, so I'm not holding my breath, but it would be great. One of the references Tony made in that segment was to Asimov's first law of robotics. Isaac Asimov was a ridiculously prolific science fiction writer who coined three laws of robotics, which are, number one, a robot must not harm a human or through inaction allow a human to come to harm. Number two, a robot must obey the orders given to it by a human except where such orders would conflict with the first law. And number three, a robot must protect its own existence except where such protection would conflict with the first or second laws. You may spot certain loopholes in those laws. So did Asimov. 
We discussed those laws when the science fiction writers Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens were on the show in episodes 2 and 3. In today's headline from the world of AI, and pandemically related, Amazon is using AI to enforce social distancing among its warehouse workers. Their distance assistant uses cameras to track employees' movements and TV screens to warn them when they're getting too close. Amazon likens the system to radar speed checks that give drivers instant feedback on their driving. Amazon also says they're going to open source the tech so anyone can do it. What do you think? Big brother or helping hand? Isn't it vexing how those interpretations can be a heartbeat from each other? But these are challenging times. Next week, I'll be interviewing another Brit, David Wood, whose LinkedIn profile describes him as futurist, catalyst, author, singularitarian. That's a heck of a payload for a four-word bio, but David is an amazing thinker. He's also chair of the London Futurists. That's where I met David while I was speaking in the House of Lords to the all-party parliamentary group on AI. More about that on another show. We also will be talking about our future with AI, but through the lens of David's quite different perspective and insights. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.